name's Ray. I'm here to give us the Bible reading this morning. And this morning's Bible reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 25. Uh, I just want to extend my uh, warm welcome again to the little ones uh, with us this morning. Uh, so boys and girls, if you can grab your Bible as well and see if you can find Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. Um, so this is a letter to the exiles, uh, a letter to uh, God's people who have been taken away as prisoners into uh, a place that's not their home country. So boys and girls, I want you guys, yeah, listening in and uh, think about what, what, does God, what is God saying to these exiles uh, in another country? So Jeremiah 29, uh, we're going to re- start reading from verse 1. This is a letter uh, that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jer- Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests and prophets and to all, uh, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem uh, to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother and the court, uh, the court officials, uh, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the craftsmen had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, um, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile, from Jerusalem to Babylon, build build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, and find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Um, Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams um, you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me And come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will will be found, found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is God's word. All right, thank you, Ray, and good morning, everyone. My name's Matt, one of the pastors here at CPE, and uh, if you've got your Bibles open, leave them open there to Jeremiah 29, and uh, we'll be having a good look at that uh, together. Well, I wonder uh, how many of you were optimists? Quick survey, 
here at CPE, optimists, hands up, and pessimists, hands up. Yeah, I think we're kind of lying pretty 50-50 on that, and uh, uh, I think that's not a bad thing. I think that's a good thing, uh, and I don't know uh, why it is that you said that and whether you think that maybe you're different uh, in different circumstances and situations. Uh, for me, look, I swing pretty far down the optimist, and I'm ever the optimist. Uh, for me, that means that I can think that I can fit any number of things into a finite amount of space or... Uh, that might be my calendar in terms of how many things that I think that I can fit uh, into my week. Uh, I think it also includes my stomach in terms of you know how optimistic I, I am in terms of how much food I, food I can consume. Uh, I find that it's often uh, quite debilitating as well in moments because I often underestimate the challenges and the uh, barriers that that might come. For example, when trying to get the kids into the car, trying to get to somewhere on time. Uh, ever the optimist, I'm always thinking, oh yeah, I've got plenty of time to get this done, only to find that actually uh, I'm 10 minutes late. All of these kinds of things which I often find that I overpromise and underdeliver. All things that I know that my wife loves. Now, I reckon there's pros and cons to both pessimism and optimism. Uh, ultimately, I think a lot of this comes down to just how you relate to reality. See, optimists generally see the positive side of things, generally believe that they can make good things happen. Uh, they generally have a better sense of their sense of life and well-being. Uh, but optimists can also be very surprised when things go wrong when, uh, because, well, we haven't properly planned for the possibility that actually things might not work out. You know, the number of times that I've you know, looked outside or looked at the weather radar and gone, oh, yeah, we'll be fine, we'll, be, we'll have a great time out at the park, only to get dumped down on rain, uh, I can tell you many a time that has happened to me. Pessimists, generally, are a little bit more grounded in reality, uh, a little bit more wary of the risks and the dangers and the obstacles that are out there. Uh, but pessimists can also be very prone to seeing the, the dark side and everything, even prone to depression. Now, a great pessimist quote that, I've, uh, that I love is this one. So, pessimist says this, I hate optimists. They jump out of a plane expecting sunshine and rainbows to cushion their fall. Meanwhile, I look both ways before crossing the street and get hit by the optimist. That's just the uh, pessimist mindset, isn't it? See, I think actually it's all about how you relate to reality. How much you can be you know, escaping to one side or the other side when it comes to reality. Uh, another uh, example I love is this one. The pessimist sees a dark tunnel. The optimist sees the light at the end of the tunnel. A realist sees a freight train. And the train driver sees three fools standing on the tracks. Now, we're coming to Jeremiah chapter 29 this morning because uh, as we've seen through this whole series... Israel has been delivered a massive reality check. They are going into exile for their wayward hearts, the way they've disobeyed God, the way they have chased after idols, they have abandoned God, they have cheated on God. Now, some of the people have remained in Jerusalem, so not everyone at this stage has gone into exile, but there is a hard question being asked of Israel this morning. And it's a hard question that we've got to examine for ourselves, and it's this. How is it that we live in the midst of the harsh realities of life? 
See, we're going to see that Jeremiah's got this message for the exiles. You know, Ray read it out to us. This is a letter that is sent to the exiles, a letter that is sent to a people who are looking at, staring down a very, very dark tunnel. See, we read it there. Come read it with me again, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See, this is Jeremiah the prophet writing to the people who have been displaced, sent out from their homes, taken as their conqueror, extracted them from their homes, extracted them from the land. Now, I don't know how many of your families might have a story of, uh, of, of being a refugee. Uh, this is my wife's family. They were forced out of Vietnam because of the war, during the war there. And, uh, uh, and from what I've gathered, you know what? Most refugees don't want to talk about that previous life because just the trauma of losing everything, losing livelihoods, homes, businesses, having families separated and and now spread all over the world as they sought to escape the country. Now, Bonnie's family are very fortunate to have been taken in by Australia and, and, and having built a new life here. And that's very much what God commands these exiles to do. This is what he says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the message to the exiled Israelites, build houses settle down, get used to this life in exile. But the last bit might seem a little disconcerting to you, right? Prosper this city, prosper the people who conquered you, who sent you into exile, who took you from your homes. Aren't they the enemy? See, I don't know how you would feel. I'm just trying to push yourself into the uh, shoes of these exiles who've lost everything. What might your mind go to? I think for some, the message might be to rebel, to fight, to take down the empire from the inside, engage in some guerrilla warfare, fight against the enemy. But this is not the message that God gives to them. See, God gives them the message to settle down, make a life for yourself there. Why? Because these 70 years... A time, a, a time that I have ordained for you, that you will send this time. This is something that God himself has decreed. Instead of taking matters into your own hands, no, trust God. Trust that he has you, in, he's got this in charge. Both, yes, this is your punishment, but also will be a path to your restoration. So don't fight, don't struggle. Accept the circumstances and make the best of it. Live normally as part of Babylonian society. Buy real estate, get married, have kids. See, this is our normal peacetime life, buying houses, raising families. But for the Israelites, they are commanded to accept the reality of what God has, has fostered upon them. This is something that is delivered 
by God. So don't go to war now, try and fight against the, the people who conquered you. Don't resist it, nor is it to descend into depression and wither and die. Nor is it to live into some kind of dreamland where well, maybe things will just turn around just around the corner. You see, that was the message that some were saying within Israel to say, hey, don't worry about this. This is just going to be a temporary thing. Be over in a few months or a few years. You see it there in verse 8. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. You know, it's a funny thing, right? Because us human beings, we love being drawn to a good promise. We do. We love being drawn to those with blind optimism who can kind of deliver a big and great vision and kind of, kind of want to take us along for that ride. We're also people who are very prone to scams as well. You know, I'm always surprised at the scams that people fall for, you know? The, oh, the ATO's ringing you up and uh, you owe uh, $300 to the ATO, better sort that out before the police get onto you. People fall for it all the time. People fall for the Nigerian prince offering you a share in millions for, well, you need to unlock it for a couple of hundred dollars. See, it's funny, isn't it? You think about all those scams, you think, oh, that's crazy, no one would fall for that, and yet... Actually, they wouldn't try, keep trying those scams unless people fell for them. People fall for them all the time. And God's message here is don't be deceived by those making empty promises to you, thinking, oh, you know, this will be over soon. He says, accept the reality of what is. You will be in exile for 70 years. There is nothing that you can do about it. So make the most of the time that you have there. But God's promise is not just that they need to endure this 70 years, but actually the 70 years is meant to teach them, to grow them, to actually point them back to God. Verse 10, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come for you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, that little verse 11 there might be, in fact, one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. Uh, it's used often as proof that, that God only wants good for you, you know? It's a God that wants to prosper you, that, the gods that, got, that God's got great plans for you personally. Now, I, call it, I kind of call it like a sentimental Christian optimism, right? It's a kind of, well, God wants the good for me, so, uh, well, he must want to prosper me. He must have some great things for me just around the corner. Now, I say that it's misquoted because often it's totally extracted out of its context. You can see the context there. This is about accepting punishment and trusting that God will actually restore you from that. Right? It's, it's, it's ignoring the fact that, that, God is, doesn't, that God does want good for you, but he is also a just God, God who disciplines, a God who judges, a God who sometimes sends pain for our growth, for our discipline. Yes, this is the same God who sent Israel into exile for their sins and who yearns for them to turn and to cry out to him. 
So you've kind of got to get our, uh, that picture of the consumer God out of our head, the, the God who's there to fulfill all of my needs. And so if I need a hope for the future, I need a hope for prosperity, well, I can find it in a, in a vague verse like this uh, taken out of its context. But what we see here is that this is a message to a people who are suffering, who are struggling, and a promise that God will restore them. Not kind of a vague promise of, you know, generally sometime in the future. It's a very concrete promise. In 70 years, I will bring you back. And the reason he says this is because he wants to see Israel turn back to God, to cry out to him. Yeah, in verse 12. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. See, church, the person of faith, the person who knows the God of the universe knows this, that sometimes it's about accepting reality as it comes from God's hand. That sometimes the hardest things in life are exactly what we need. That it may be that this is right here, right now, the hard aspect of a hard thing that's going on for you right now is God's way of refining your trust in Him. That, that it's a way of God drawing you towards Him. That you might actually call out to Him, you might cry to Him, that you might turn to Him. See, when that moment comes... Whether it's this year, whether it's next year, and your plans are destroyed, your dreams crushed, your family falls apart, your health deteriorates, or you get struck down with an incurable brain cancer, the message is don't run, don't hide, don't blame God, don't go seeking after alternative saviors, retail therapy, chocolate, alcohol, TV, romance, video games. What God calls you to, he calls you back to him, to call to him, to cry out to him, to lament to him, and to trust in his plans for you. See, Israel's disaster was a wake-up call for them, a wake-up call for them to turn back to God, something that they hadn't been doing. It's a, it comes as a wake-up call that all their sin and idolatry is what's landed them in exile in the first place. And turning back to God is what will save them from that. But what you need to notice there is, and what you see there in, in those verses, is the fact that God promises that He will do all of this. This is not for you uh, to go and, and try and take it to your own hands. It's a promise for Israel to trust, to call, to cry out that God will restore them. And now next term, we're actually going to see more of the story as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah. We see how it is that Israel returned from exile and the work that God does with them there. But after 70 years of exile have passed... And the great Babylonian empire is defeated by the Persians. Israel are allowed to return. But I want to focus today on asking you the question, how do you go at facing hard realities? 
If you're an optimist, you might want to see the good and the opportunity and everything. If you're the pessimist, you might feel all the hard things and then miss the hope that's there. I think this chapter is a call to both accepting the realities of life in the present and looking forward to the hope that only God can offer. The God who brings both joys and sorrows, but a God who never abandons us. You see, this bleak moment in history looks forward to a greater hope for Israel, that God has not abandoned them, that he does indeed have plans plans to prosper them, not to harm them, to give them a hope and a future. But it's not just a vague and sentimental hope. See, church, it was a few hundred years later that a man, Jesus Christ, led the true return from exile, not just for Israel, but for all humanity. See, as a race of human beings, we all live in exile. We all live in exile in this broken and fallen and hurting world, a world that is sick and is yearning, yearning for a God to come and save them. And he ended that exile by bearing all the sin and the judgment of the world upon himself. And by standing upon that, by bearing it for our sake, he offers us a hope and a future. It's not a get-rich scheme, an eternal future with the God of the universe, a place with no more suffering. And church, now I don't know you all, I don't know all of your stories, I don't know what's going on in your lives right now. But I know enough of you to know this, that there are many right here this morning who are walking that dark tunnel, who are walking that dark path. And I want to say that it might be tempting to look anywhere else but to God for that comfort and hope. Or maybe to look to some kind of a vague Christian hope. But God's message for you this morning is that his plans for a hope and a future have already come to pass in Christ. And that won't magically take the pain that you might be experiencing away right now. But when that suffering is taken as part of God's plan for you, where we can begin to turn to God, crying out in that pain and and entrusting ourselves to God, entrusting our future that is locked in with Christ. God wants to reframe and, and, and shape our understanding of what it means to live through that suffering, to see what God is doing in you and through you right now. See, I think the truth in this passage is this, that we can both faith face the hard realities of the present and be hopeful about the future because of God's promise to us in Christ. See, I think there is something of a realistic pessimism about our present, like recognizing that life is hard, it is fraught, this is not heaven, you will not find that here. Yet we can also have a realistic optimism about the future, because of what Christ has already done in the past for us that guarantees our future reality with God. See, Paul speaks about this so well in, in, in chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, my favourite chapter of the Bible. It says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And friends, Paul is speaking to us today. He is speaking to a church under deep suffering. Elizabeth Elliot, the missionary who lost her husband on the mission field, said this, The deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. You know, friends, sometimes that suffering is a thing that actually cements our faith in God. It's a thing that actually helps us to call out to Him, to realize that we have nothing on our own, that we have no foundation to stand on apart from God and His grace and His hopes and the promises that we can have in Him that are secure. All of our worldly treasures, all the worldly promises that we have can fall away at the click of a finger. But friends, there is one hope that is secure, and that is a hope that is secured in Christ. This week I was reading a story about a woman who uh, recounts her life, and uh, it's really quite a tragic life in lots of ways. She uh, grew up with with a condition that meant that she had to repeatedly go back to surgery all the way through her childhood, 13 surgeries, spending lots a lot of time in hospital for a kid. She then faced bullying in school miscarriages in adult life and chronic pain from a debilitating disease in her midlife. But I actually just wanted to read out some of her reflections on how that's actually grown her and how that helped her to call out to God and to turn to God and to face that suffering with faith. That's what she says. She says this, So what do we know that we should focus on in, in our suffering? What do we know with rock-solid certainty? We know that the entire world is under God's control. We know that God loves us enough to send his son to die in our place. We know that if a sovereign God who tenderly loves us permits suffering in our lives, he must have a purpose. We know that he who tells the ocean how far it can come will not let us suffer any longer than necessary. And since we know that God has a purpose in suffering, we can be sure that our trials will accomplish something invaluable both in us and through us. While the specific reasons for any suffering are a mystery, we can know that what we lean, when we lean into God and not away from Him in our pain, we can glimpse part of what He's doing. This is what I have learned through those glimpses. God uses suffering to deepen our faith and to draw us closer to Him. In pain, we pray more earnestly because we need God's help. We read the Bible more intentionally because we need to hear God's voice. We ask and seek more consistently because we're desperate. And when we do that, we find the Lord's reassurances throughout Scripture. Our love for God can be weak in times of prosperity. Our thoughts focus on the things we want. But in our suffering, our thoughts are riveted on God. When our dreams disintegrate, we begin to long for something more lasting. It's there that we find Jesus and realize that he is more valuable, more precious, more fulfilling than anything he can give us. He is our greatest gift. Your suffering will end. Your pain will not last forever. But as you wait, God is deepening your faith, refining your character and encouraging others to trust him by your example. So don't waste your suffering for it will be the making of your faith. God is using it in a thousand ways you may never see in this life. But one day, when your faith becomes sight, you will be grateful for them all. You know, church, 
I don't know if you're suffering right now or you may suffer in the future. But I do know this, that God will use that and he will grow you, he will refine you. And one day you might even be grateful for it because you, you learned that it helped you to see Christ more clearly and to trust in him more. Let me pray for us this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you have loved us with a deep and abiding love in Jesus. And as you sent him to die in our place for our sin, Lord, you have taken the greatest judgment away from us. But Father, more than that, it means that he has secured a hope for us, a hope that can't be shaken a hope that can never be taken away. And should our dreams dissipate or our health fail, Father, we will always have Christ. Father, I pray for those right now who may be suffering, who may be enduring the deep, uh, dark tunnels of life right now. Father, might you help them to endure. Might you help them to turn to Christ. Might you help them to see that the work that you are doing in them right now And Father, most of all, might we refine our trust in Jesus, in whom our hope and our future is secure. Father, might we call out to him in every and each and every circumstance, know him, trust him, recognize him, and love him more as a result. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, church, why don't you take a moment just to reflect on those words.